Isaiah 49. The general theme of our studies at the moment are um, the patriarchs in the New Testament. Not that they lived then, but that how the New Testament thought of themselves in light of the patriarchs, and in, in generally in Genesis. Uh, but before that, uh, we're going we're gonna to stop off, just like we did last time, at a waypoint. Because we worked through Genesis, and uh, that's a long time ago, and a lot of history happened between Genesis and the New Testament. And so Isaiah 49, uh, which is going to be in a very similar situation as, uh, as last time, as the last selection we read from Isaiah as well. So Isaiah 49, we'll only read the first section. And recall the, the, the context here is exile. Once again, the people of God are in exile, and God is going to deliver them. All right, God is going to deliver them for a particular purpose, and we'll see what that is. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I, have, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. So this is about Israel, but prophetically also about Christ. It is in Revelation, uh, Christ who has the, the sharp sword out of his mouth, right? That is uh, several times mentioned in that book. It is Christ that was called from his womb, from the womb of his mother, to come and help the children of Israel. And though you've got in verse 4 a a hint of despair, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, it's followed up with, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And so, through this servant, Jacob and Israel are supposed to be brought back, gathered to God, the end of exile. He says, verse 6, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and rise, princes they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Note here, what's the end result ultimately of the restoration of the tribes of Jacob and the preservation of Israel? It is, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so even in 
their, the, the midst of their worst issues ever of being captive in a foreign land, um, it, the understanding of the purpose of God's salvation and work is not just, okay, let's solve this problem. Though that is definitely a major part, the most important part of this section. That's where the focus is. But at the end of that, there is this other thing. Why do you need to be restored? This goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Abraham. You must be restored because, well, the nations are supposed to be gathered. I mean, ultimately, the idea in this, right, is... Why would the nations be gathered? Well, because God is blessing his people. That's why the nations should be gathered. When they're in Babylon, why would the Gentiles be gathered to the Jews? That doesn't make any sense. They're defeated, right? It looks like their God had lost. And so therefore, for God to gather in the Gentiles while, they're, while the Jews are in exile, that's completely unattractive. Why, why in the world would the Gentiles be interested in that sort of thing? Uh, well, the idea is, well, God will restore their fortunes, all right, and will actually bless Israel. And when God blesses Israel in a supremely magnificent way, all right, then he will use that to bring in the Gentiles. There's a theology there. There's an idea there that God's blessing will be on his people for a purpose. God's blessing would be on Abraham for a purpose that the Gentiles would ultimately bless in the end. Um, that will be relevant again in just a moment. If you would please turn to the book of Acts now. We discussed Abraham and the patriarchs in the Gospels. Abraham is mentioned a number of times. My goal today is to talk about the same thing in Acts and then start with Galatians. Uh, we will not finish it today. We will be ending a little bit early because we do have a men's meeting today. But that's we'll, we'll get essentially as far as we can. Uh, you can turn to Acts 3 if you want to. We won't say much here. We've recently gone through... Um, through two of these selections in Acts, so one more recently than others. Uh, first is in Acts 3.13. If we start reading in, in verse 3.11, uh, this is a sermon by Peter. While he clung to Peter, a fellow, utterly astounded, uh, excuse me, clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us and though, and as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. All right, notice his very succinct summary of all important history right up to that point. All right. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. All right. And so he starts with where, where did this all begin? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What's the summation? The God of those people, their ancestors, his physical ancestors. All right. The God of those, of those people, glorified his servant, Jesus. All right? And so we ought to see theologically, right? He's, he's, he, these are linked, obviously. 
right? God said, I I will bless Abraham and your seed. All right. And then what happens? Well, God did, in fact, bless Abraham's seed, uh, Christ himself. So has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And notice how he's very clearly putting the onus here on the the people who betrayed Jesus, not on, on the Romans. All right. The, the, the problem here is not ultimately Pilate. That's not where he's putting the blame. Because Pilate had, decide, had decided to release him. Do, do we think that Pilate sinned in handing over Jesus? I mean, I think we do, right? I mean, he should not have handed over an innocent man. He should have stood up for him. We know, we look at that and go, well, that, that has to be defined as a sin. But that's not the major problem here. And this is where, this is how, see how Peter's uh, crafting his speech to make that point. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. That's a fascinating piece of theology right there, right? You have to have quite a belief in Jesus to not only just go, well, God resurrected him, and so therefore God approved of him when you did not, right? You crucified, right? You killed, right? The opposite of life, right? You killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come for the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. And once again... Peter brings this back to history of what something God has been working towards and been talking about for a long time. Moses said on that theme, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And that shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so we've got a sequence here of... God has sent Christ first to them to turn them from their wickedness. All right, And there's even a mention of the whole Gentile thing, right? In verse 25. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But the focus here in all of this is not on that, actually. The focus here is on them. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews. And the focus is God made promises to Abraham. God has glorified Jesus. There's your your key sequence. Promises to Abraham, God glorified Jesus. There you go. 
two extremely important polls. One just happened. One happened a long time ago, right? And he builds this theology of God has come to bless you. Has he, you did things in ignorance, and if you will just repent, times of refreshing can come to you. All right? And this focus consistently, except for that one small part here, is repent and come back to Christ. All anchored in that same promise to Abraham. The coming of Christ was just simply a fulfillment of what God had planned to do all along. That's very clear New Testament theology. We also see this in Acts 7 as well. Acts 7, you've got uh, Stephen's speech. And we won't go through this one. Though Abraham is mentioned in 7.2. And Stephen said, Brothers... And fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. All right. Also mentions him in verse 8. And he gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Also verse 16. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Also verse 17. And, at the, and as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And also in 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in this case, he's speaking to Moses. Now, the main point, if you might recall from Acts 7, is Paul is, uh, excuse me, Paul, though Paul is is quite nearby, um, as we know, going still by the name Saul, at least with these people, right? Stephen is making a speech, right, in front of the, the religious leaders to basically make the point that it is their custom and has been their custom for a very long time for them to persecute the real prophets of God. And they are continuing in that mode, right? That's, that's the point of his speech there. And we probably, I hope, recall what the result of that was. If you're not, I will tell you. Uh, the result of, the, of him saying that to them was he was murdered. All right? In continuing fulfillment of the same pattern that he had just talked about. Stephen was taken out and then murdered. Now turn to Acts 13. And I want to read this, even though we will wait, um, Lord willing, perhaps a few months for Bill to make his way all the way there to, to fully explain uh, chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 13. And we're going to see that Abraham-related things can make some very important um, make some very important points here. So this is Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. Um, just brief historical aside: Why are there so many Antiochs? Because there's multiple Antiochs. Anybody know? The uh, same reason why there's multiple Caesareas and multiple Alexandrias. What's that? Right. And who's who? Who in this particular case? Anybody know who the these leaders were? Caesarea would be either Jesus, uh, 
Caesar, right? Either Julius Caesar. Jeezer is a combination of Julius Caesar, just in case you're wondering. Um, it's, it's of Latin derivation. Yeah, Jeezer. Um, Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar, right? Okay. Alexandria was named after? Alexander the Great. Antioch was named after? Antiochus. There were various Antiochus. Keen folks in the line of the Seleucids who rolled this general area in the Hellenistic era. Hellenistic side aside, over. Now Paul, in verse 13, and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, this would be John Mark. Uh, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. An opening. Fantastic, right? So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, Jews, Gentiles, who are in the synagogue. All right. The God of this people, Israel, all right, and so we're already kind of pointing back to Abraham, chose our fathers, that makes it explicit, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So once again, it's rooted in history. Remember the fathers and then remember Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So we start from Abraham and the fathers to Egypt and how God, with uplifted arm, with strong arm, I, uh, the image I have is, you know, weapon holding is the idea, right? Brought them out with strength. All right. He put up with them for 40 years. All right. Because um, if you remember the story, they, they were rebellious people during that time. And then over a period of time, gave them the land, eventually bringing about David. All right. Now, David, their, their descendant, right? Made promises to him. And then ultimately, of course, we're going to, uh, we're going to link that with Jesus. And so, in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he had promised. Okay, so here's the sequence, all the way from Abraham, through all of that history, to David, all right, and to here. Before his coming, back up, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John is just a little bit older than Jesus, right? A few months. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, 
and to those among you who fear God. Once again, addressing the two groups there. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, everyone would know all of this stuff, except maybe the last part. All right. Now, John was very famous. All right. And so it wouldn't be a surprise if they'd heard of John. All right. And the events around Jesus, those were probably fairly famous, too. And so they might actually know some of that, but maybe not everything. So he's, he's filling in things here. But a lot of these theological ideas, they would be like, yes, Abraham and our forefathers, yes to Egypt, yes to David, even yes to ideas of the, the a Davidic heir would come at some point and free them. So all of those things would be total theological review and Bible review for them. John, I'm maybe, who knows how many of them have heard of John and who had heard of Jesus at that point. But certainly all the other stuff would be very well understood by all of these folks. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not understand, excuse me, um, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And we, who are, excuse me, who are now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known that you, therefore, brothers... That though that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you in and this is a, I think of just a fascinating just statement just wording and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about look you scoffers be astounded and uh, astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And he's saying there, I'm telling it to you, right? I'm, I am the one telling it to you right now. Be astounded, all right? Be astounded. God is doing a work in your, in your presence. What's the result of this? Well, Two different results. One, as they went out in verse 42, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So that's good. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. All looks good. All right. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Things have turned bad. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and this is uh, actually quoting from the Isaiah passage we read earlier, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many and as many who were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So, from a theological perspective, if you're Paul, and you're reading Isaiah, the section we we read before, you're going to have this notion that God is going to renew the people of God. Jacob, Israel. He's going to renew them. And through that, all right, through that, after that point, all right, after God starts fixing things there, he is then going to fix things in the Gentile realm, right? Right? That's, that's kind of a notion. I'm going to bring you back, and so then the nations can, can come in, all right? And what we were reading earlier with Peter, what we're reading here with Paul, all right? They're basically making this argument that uh, Jesus has come in fulfillment ultimately to the promises to the patriarchs. So going all the way back to Abraham, Jesus has come. Now don't be like your many of your ancestors and reject God when he's trying to work in your midst. Or you essentially will perish. Right? That's, that's his argument he's making. All right. So what happens? Some fully accept it. Apparently, some reject it, right? Reject it quite strongly, and don't just re- reject it calmly, but are like, we are going to chase you out of town. At this point, kind of reject you, right? Even in, inciting the chief women and men of the, t- of the city to ultimately persecute Paul and Barnabas, all right? And what ultimately is Paul's response to this? And this is slightly different than Isaiah. It's an, it's an interesting fulfillment, all right? What's his response to this, right? Since you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes that, quotes that section from Isaiah, what you get, theologically speaking, in the New Testament. All right? And this is where we would go next. Though we don't have much time. All right? we'll, we'll take a break in about four or five minutes. What you get is a, um, a better theological understanding of ultimately, who are the children of Abraham? We actually saw it in John, right? When John, there's only one place in John where Abraham is an important figure, all right? It's a long section, but it's one point. And it's this, essentially, John's argument there. If you, if you love me and do what I do, uh, then you are son of Abraham. If you reject me, uh, then you are a son of the devil, all right? And he defines there being a child of Abraham by not by physical descent, descent but by faith, right? by belief and obedience in the Christ. That, all right, seen in Jesus is 
seen a lot in the New Testament, all right, and becomes ex- very explicitly argued, all right, by Paul and others. Here you can see it. It becomes even more explicit in the book of Galatians. And so if you would, turn there, and uh, I will tell you what we will be discussing, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. It's very difficult to try to cover the book of Galatians in three minutes, so therefore I will not try. The core part of the argument based on Abraham in the book of Galatians is chapter 3. Okay. Now it's important to not just read chapter 3. Um, Galatians is not a smattering of random Paul faults. All right? uh, Galatians is a letter all right, written to solve a particular problem. All right? uh, Paul's kind of mad. All right? Rightly mad, righteously mad, but Paul's upset, very upset when he writes this letter. And that becomes clear in various different ways as you read it. And the core of his argument, his theological argument, really begins either midway through chapter 2 or chapter 3. Chapter 2, basically, if you look at verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet we know, all right, well, he's referring to previous preaching. He hasn't really argued that point yet in Galatians. That is his argument in chapter 3. And his argument is entirely based on the life of Abraham and God's work in him. So that is where we will focus next time. But do, in preparation, read Galatians, all right? And here's the basic notion which, which sets up everything that's going on. Paul came there and preached to people and about Jesus, all right? And they received that message, all right? And he, whenever they received that message, he didn't tell them, okay, now you all have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic Law. He didn't do that. He just, you believed in Jesus, then they received the Spirit, and that is good enough, all right? That was essentially when Paul visited. That's the assumption of this book. Paul preached, they believed, they received the Spirit, they became children of God, children of Abraham at that point. Then somebody came in later and said, all right, not only is that wrong, somebody I think must have actually said, all right, that Paul says you have to obey the law of Moses. That's certainly what the problematic people said. But based on the argument here, I think they, some people came in and said, no, 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 you misunderstood Paul. Paul teaches this too. All right? And so they come in as a false messenger, as a false angel, coming in and saying, you must obey, and we're glad that you believe in Jesus. Now you must obey the law and you must all be circumcised if you really want to be Christians. All right? And Paul writes this letter saying, no. All right? Even if I say this, which is one reason to argue why they, people were, to say that people were claiming that. If I say this, or an angel from heaven, or angel just means messenger, or a messenger from heaven says that you must be circumcised and you must follow the law to be children of Abraham, all right, let that person be cursed, all right? And then, all right, you've got him, he he gives a little bio, he gives a, a, 
little uh, argument he had with Peter that was very relevant, and then he starts to make this argument about being justified by faith, starting in verse, um, you know, halfway through Galatians chapter 2, in verse 15. Okay? So in that light, all right, it's all about, do you have to obey the law? Do you have to be circumcised to be a child of Abraham? That's what it's about. Okay? So read it in that light, and then, uh, Lord willing, we will discuss next Lord's Day.